You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 13, and when you found your place there, we'll bow our heads in prayer and ask God's blessing upon our time before we begin. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word, which is a revelation to us of who you are and how you have revealed yourself in the person of Christ. Without your word, we would never know about your nature or your character. We see who we see that you are, and we see somewhat of your power and your grace and your provision in creation, but we would never know the nature of our God if it were not for your word. So we thank you for that, and we thank you that the best and the most perfect and the fullest revelation of the nature of our God is in the person of Christ. It is in his name that we come and ask you to be our guide and our teacher as we look at your word. May we catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ and fall more in love with him. May we find our delight and our joy in who Christ is and what he has done, and may we see his nature and his character today in the words of Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Mark chapter 10, in the 45th verse, there are some familiar words. Jesus said, the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man, did not come to be to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are familiar words, and we have probably memorized those words. You've certainly heard uh, those words spoken or at least presented here, even from the pulpit. Uh, Those words are a marvelous demonstration of the manner and the the majesty of Jesus Christ, that he came into this world and he did not come to to uh, be served, but himself to serve, that is to give himself as a ransom for many. The context of those words gives us an even greater glimpse into what Jesus was dealing with and what he was addressing in Mark chapter 10. Uh, the disciples had come to uh, John, uh, Jesus, two of them, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They had come to Jesus and asked for a, a privileged position in the kingdom and said, in your kingdom, we would like to sit. Uh, one at your right hand and one at your left hand. And that's what they wanted, the positions of prominence and power in the kingdom. And the other disciples caught wind of this, and, and Mark says they were indignant, and understandably so. Uh, who are James and John? And that's John, the author of this gospel. Uh, that's Who are James and John to, su- to suggest or to think that they would deserve the, the right hand and the left hand in the kingdom? I mean, after all, who should that go to? Me, Right? That's what what the other ten disciples were thinking. Who are you two to think that that should go to you? That should go to me. And everybody in their flesh would say the same thing. Well, I want the position of power. I want the position of preeminence. I want the right hand or the left hand. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, called them to him. And this is what he said. And this is the context. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus pointed to himself as the ultimate example of the service and the sacrifice that he was trying to instill into his disciples. Even the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, even he did not come to be served, but himself to serve and then to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate service. And that whole phrase, that whole idea is 
that is captured there by Mark is quite in keeping with how Mark presents Jesus. Mark presents uh, Jesus or portrays Jesus as a servant. And so in Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly busy, moving from one scene, one event, one location, one person, one miracle, one teaching, one uh, location to another, all the way through Mark's gospel. If you read through Mark's gospel, take note of all of the mentions of the word immediately. It's stunning. Almost in every chapter, it's Jesus, then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. And Jesus is constantly moving. As Mark portrays Jesus as God's servant. In the Gospel of John, we catch a similar glimpse of Jesus and his humility and his his service, but from a slightly, admittedly, a slightly different angle. John portrays Jesus as God incarnate. He is the Word who became flesh, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the incarnate God, but John also portrays Jesus as a perfect servant, because that incarnate God, what did he come to do? He came to do all of the Father's will. So every gracious act, every compassionate miracle, everything that he did, Jesus said, all I do is what the Father tells me to do. All I speak is what the Father tells me to speak. He sent me. I came from heaven. I'm going back to the Father. I do perfectly and fulfill perfectly all that the Father gave me to do and sent me to do. So Jesus is the perfect divine one who himself was submitted to the Father and did all of the Father's will and carried out everything that the Father gave him right down to the salvation of all that the Father had given to him. And Jesus did it perfectly. And we catch a glimpse of this marvelous sacrifice and servanthood in John chapter 13. And by the way, that service of Jesus did not just last all the way up until the end of his life. It continues today. Do you realize that Jesus Christ today serves his people? Do you know how he does it? He is the faithful high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father and constantly makes intercession for whom? For all those for whom he made a sacrifice. For all those for whom he gave his life, he intercedes with the Father. He intercedes for those people on behalf uh, on behalf of those people with the Father. So he is serving, even today, he serves his people, praying for all of those whom he has saved, praying for all of those who are saved today, and praying for all of those whom he will save until he gathers in all of the last of the ones that the Father has given to him. A perfect high priest who even today serves in the presence of the Father. So we get a glimpse of this service in John chapter 13. We looked at verse 1 last week. Today we're going to be looking at verses 2 and uh, two through 4. And before, we kind of, before I kind of give you an outline of where we're going today, I want to just remind you what we covered last week. Last week we looked at the love of the Savior. In chapter 13, verse 1, that Jesus, knowing that he was departing out of this world, loved his own, those whom the Father had given to him, he loved his own, who were in the world, and he loved them to the end, to the, to, the, to the perfect degree, to the perfect way. He loved them all the way to the very end, those who were in the world whom the Father had given to him. So that was the love of the Savior. Now we see the love, that love of the Savior manifested in service to those whom the Father had given to him in the foot washing, which starts in verse 5 and goes through the end of verse 11. We'll look at that last week, but today we're still looking at kind of John setting up this, this scene on the Last Supper, the night before uh, Jesus' crucifixion, we're just looking at those introductory verses, and today we're going to see the service of the Savior, verses 2 through 4. So let's read them together, and then I'll give you a brief outline. First, in verse 2, we see that this, this service of Christ, the humility of it, is demonstrated in what Jesus was facing, what he faced. Verse 2, during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. We see it in what Jesus knew, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God. And then what Jesus did, verse 4, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. What Jesus faced, what Jesus knew, and what Jesus did. So we'll look first at verse 2, what Jesus faced. And the simple answer to that is betrayal. 
Notice how John says in verse 2, that during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. What is the occasion? It is during supper. So we are to picture this. The, the disciples are with Jesus in that room. It is the night before his crucifixion. They are together celebrating the Passover meal. And at some point during that event, Jesus got up, knowing what he did, he got up to serve his disciples by washing their feet. And it happened during supper. And that's not just John's way of communicating to us the timing of it or the occasion of it or the setting of it. That is a way for John to indicate to us the nature of this gathering in that room. It was during supper. Now, in our culture, in our context, we've kind of lost the the intimacy that a supper can bring. Uh, I grew up in a home where we never had supper together except on special occasions. I could count on one hand. In fact, I could count on my shop te- teacher's one hand the number of suppers that we would enjoy together over the course of a year around a table. Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I lived a certain lifestyle where mom came home, she had worked all day, she cooked a meal, she put it on the stove, and then kids would come and go as they were hungry all night eating. So I would come in from outside because I was too busy to eat. Eating was a waste of time for me. So I would come in, I would grab something, I would wolf it down and go right back outside again. And only a couple times a year did we sit around as a family around the table, Thanksgiving and Christmas, were those two occasions where we all kind of gathered around a table. Now, in our culture, maybe you kind of grew up like that. Maybe that's how your family uh, rolls. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just saying that I enjoy together as a family sitting around a table at least once a day and enjoying a meal. I love that because that communicates something, doesn't it? In our culture, we've kind of lost it, but we at least understand that when we invite somebody over, we go over to somebody else's house by invitation, that when they share a meal for us and they put out food for us or we do that to somebody else, what are we communicating? We're communicating a family, right? Love, intimacy, friendship, sort of a familial, uh, uh, a comfortable atmosphere together. In the Eastern culture in Jesus' day, it was even more so. A meal was not a rushed endeavor. They would lay around, they would sit around. Sometimes a meal would take hours. Even today, I, I still have the remnants of, of, uh, of growing up eating that way. I, I can eat a meal in, I mean, minutes. You can clock me. It's not much. And when Dater and I first got married, she would sit down to eat, and I would already have been eating. I would already have eaten. And she puts the food out, and we, di- we pray, I dish up, I look up, and she's just starting her meal, and I'm done with mine, and then I have to sit there and wait for her. Uh, it wasn't that like that in the disciples' day. They would sit around and lounge around a table for sometimes hours. It wasn't a rushed endeavor. They would enjoy this intimacy and the conversation and the fellowship. So as John talks about this supper, we are to picture something that is intimate, it is familial. This is the master with his disciples. They have been together. He has taught them for three years, and they're enjoying a meal together on the night before he is to be crucified on their behalf. This is something that is intimate and it is personal and it is relaxed. And guess who's there? Judas. Doesn't he really spoil the whole thing? Doesn't he just spoil the whole thing? The ultimate fake disciple. He is there and and, and if, if the presence of one devil soils that scene, what does the presence of two devils do? Not just Judas the devil, but devil the devil the devil. That devil For the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So with this meal being played out, at some point there was a break and Jesus got up to serve his disciples and who was present. And John wants us to know that this scene is not to just in our minds exist with the disciples and Jesus there and and everything is going well and everybody has warm thoughts toward one another. There is one in the midst, a fake disciple, a false believer, one who was not truly converted, who had... Hours earlier, days earlier, hatched a plan to betray Jesus would result in his destruction. So that's the scene that is unfolding. 
The devil has already put it into the heart of Judas. And Judas is right there. The devil's put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Now John agrees with the other synoptic gospels that the, the plan to, to betray Jesus that was hatched by Judas and instigated by Satan, by the way, and we're going to look at that in just a second, that plan was not something that unfolded over the course of just a couple of hours. Back in John, the beginning of the 12th chapter, and the other synoptics mentioned this as well, when Jesus had his feet anointed by Mary and she came in and anointed his feet with oil and poured that over his head and down onto his feet and worshipped him and, and wiped his feet with her hair, as that whole thing unfolded, that that made Judas express his greed and his covetousness for the money that they could have sold that perfume for. But in John chapter 12, verse 4, John writes this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Already days earlier, John notes that Judas was there and he watched this unfold. He was already intending to betray him. And John here in the 13th chapter is just reminding us that this dinner, Satan had already put it into Judas's heart. Now there are two elements going on here. There's Judas and there is the devil. Now let me ask you a question. Who was responsible for Judas's treachery? Judas or the devil? The devil put it into his heart. Did he not? But Judas did the deed. Did he not? So who is responsible for Judas's treachery, his betrayal? Judas or the devil? Or both? Both of them are actually responsible for their own role in this, right? We have two players. We have the devil putting something into Judas's heart. We have Judas carrying out the deed. And scripture says Judas is the son of perdition, that he went the way that it had been, that it had been ordained by him, by God's providence. And that's in the book of Acts where it says that Judas was predestined to this. But did Judas do anything unwillingly? Was he coerced to betray Christ? He wasn't at all. The devil put forth the idea, the devil put it into his heart, but it found fertile soil inside of Judas's heart. And so Judas is the one who carried out the deed. Judas is the one who bears responsibility for doing what he did. But we cannot also ignore, we can't ignore the fact that the Satan is there, the devil is there, putting it into Judas's heart, and the devil had a role in this as well. Now I ask myself, has this not been played out millions upon millions of times in human history? That the devil would put something into the heart of man that man would most gladly and willingly carry out in opposition to God. Now what is the mixture of that? What percentage of human evil is due just to the darkness of our own hearts? And what percentage of evil is due to some cooperation like we see going on here? Some cooperation between the devil and the darkened human heart. The answer to that I do not know. I don't think scripture tells us. But I think it tells us enough to sufficiently say that we know with confidence that it does happen. Now, how does that happen in the spiritual realm? What does that look like? I don't know. It would be speculation for me to say, uh, here's how it works. Right? Satan meets with his demons and they hatch a little conspiracy and all of them are assigned a certain person. And, and I don't know how many times it is. In fact, let me say this. I think that this, this would probably cash out three different ways. There are probably schemes that Satan puts in the heart of men that men want to carry out and they set about to carry out but God in His grace prohibits them from doing so. He restrains that evil. Then there are probably instances where, like in John chapter 13, where the devil puts something into the heart of man, and man willingly rushes to carry it out, and he does so. And then there are probably times when man, just in the darkness of his own heart, without any influence from Satan whatsoever, gladly carries out the darkness of his deeds. Does sinful man really need a devil to tempt him? 
Do we really need that? Even if the devil did not exist, I am convinced that our world would still be filled with death and disease and destruction and violence and sin. Because Jesus said that what defiles a man does not come out of the heart of the devil, but out of what? Out of his own heart. Evil thoughts and intentions and motives. Those are the things that defile a man. Those are the things that defile men. And what is the source of it? It's our own hearts. Even without the devil, we would wreak havoc on God's creation. But there are instances, obviously, where Satan puts in the heart of somebody to, to direct that, to instigate it, and God does not restrain that evil. And the heart of that man is a ready seedbed, a, a ready garden for that seed of, that is sown in his heart to hatch, to take root, and to come to fruition. In fact, I would agree with J.C. Ryle that this is a, a vivid description of exactly how Satan works. John says Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas. And the word put there is the, the Greek word balo in the Greek. It's a word that means to throw or to cast. And it is most often translated throwing. And it's used of casting something at or towards somebody. And J.C. Ryle says this is a beautiful picture of exactly how Satan works. He takes the seeds of his evil thoughts and he casts them into the heart of man. And guess where that seed lands? On fertile soil. So the man can do exactly what the devil wants him to do. And then man, like Judas, gladly carries out his deeds and does his destructive work while the devil is cooperating with him. Did Who bears the responsibility, Judas or the devil? Both. The devil did what he did, but Judas was not coerced. Judas, What Judas did was the, was the expression of his own love for darkness, his own desire for death, his own hatred for Jesus Christ. And they say, what is it that, uh, about what Jesus faced, the betrayal? What is it that manifests the glory of Christ in this foot washing? And here it is. When Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, who was there? Judas was there. And you know what that means? That Jesus washed Judas's feet. Now that's stunning. Because Jesus knew Judas's heart. Jesus knew what Judas was intending to do. Jesus knew what Judas had been doing for days in turning him over and being willing to sell him and value him for only 30 pieces of silver. All of that was in the mind and the heart of Judas. And all of it Jesus knew flawlessly. He knew exactly where Judas had been that very day, plotting his betrayal, plotting his destruction, and Jesus washed his feet anyway. Nobody could say it better than Charles Spurgeon, who said this, He, that is Jesus, He, gently handled that heel which had been lifted up against Him, washing from it the dust gathered in its secret walk upon the traitor's errand. That's beautiful language, isn't it? He knelt down and He washed Judas' feet, knowing exactly where those feet had been that day meeting with the Pharisees, plotting his destruction, and turning him over for 30 pieces of silver. Now here's a question for you. In fact, two of them. First of all, I cannot... I cannot. Here's the question I ask myself. Let me put it this way. Here's the question I ask myself. Am I not much like Judas in this text? At, at this very moment in the narrative, John chapter 13, we would expect the wrath of divine... the fire of divine wrath to come out and to consume Judas... But it doesn't. Instead, the Savior kneels and washes His feet. And how many times has the Lord done that for me? That I've betrayed Him, that I've failed Him, that I've sinned against Him, even that I have been in the process of hatching some evil deed in my heart. And yet, the Lord Jesus does not consume me with the fires of divine wrath. But instead, He forgives me, He washes me, He cleanses me, and He, keep, he brings me into His fold and He keeps me there and secures me by His grace. Even in the midst sometimes of us thinking evil thoughts and hatching evil deeds, the Lord is gracious to forgive and to wash our feet and to not hold that against us, and instead He cleanses us from all our sin. And here's the second question. Would you do this? Would you wash the feet of somebody that you knew 
had been in, at work betraying you that very day? Would you bend down, stoop down, and do the work of a menial slave, one of the lowest functions of slavery in that culture? Would you do that to somebody who you knew that day had been putting into place a plan to destroy you? Would you do that? That is an easy question to answer. No. You don't even have to get the question fully out of your mouth. I would answer it no. It's an easy question to answer, but it is a difficult question to ask because what does it reveal about me? How unlike the Lord Jesus Christ that I really am, right? That he would do that for Judas. That that shows you the the majesty and the glory of this humiliation that the Lord Jesus would do that in fa- in the face of what in, in, right in the midst of what he faced, which was betrayal from this traitor. Second, the second thing that demonstrates the majesty of, and the humility of this act is what Jesus knew. Look at verse three. What Jesus knew. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, this is the second time in these first four verses that John mentions what Jesus knew. Verse one, Jesus knew that he was, had coming from the Father, was going back to the Father. He loved his own who were in the world. So the first reference to knowing in verse one is in connection to his loving his own. He knew that he was going back to the Father, that he was leaving the world, he was departing from the world, and he was leaving his disciples in it. Jesus, being aware of that, loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. The second reference to knowing is in, in connection with his act of service. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and that he was going back to God. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, what is all things? It is quite literally all things. Now, I can't list for you all things, but we can kind of sum them up under some general categories. Let me give you some other scripture references that speak of the Father giving all things into the hands of the Son. First, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and everyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That is, nobody can know the Father unless the Son wants to reveal the Father to that individual. The revelation of the Father to any individual rests upon whose will? The Son's will. And Jesus said, that power to reveal to whomever I will the Father, that has been given into my hands. In John chapter 3, John writes, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. In John 5, do you remember the Divine Son discourse? For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man." And then in John chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus prays in his prayer to the Father on the night of his arrest, even as you gave him, speaking of himself in the third person, saying to the Father, you gave the Son of Man, that is, Jesus would be saying me, you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So what did the Father give to the Son? He gave to the Son the authority to reveal the Father to any man. He gave to the Son the salvation of all God's people. He gave to the Son the power and authority to execute judgment. He has committed all authority, all power, all principalities, all dominion, all rule. Everything has been given to Him. The throne of His Father David is His. 
And he will rule on it. And he will have his kingdom. He will have everything. And the expanse of his kingdom will never end. And it will go on and on forever and ever. He has all of that authority. And he is head over the church. Over all things. Now what makes this that so marvelous to know in, in light of John 13? Jesus knew that everything that was God's had been given into his hands. And yet he stooped to wash the disciples' feet. It is one thing to observe service like this from somebody who knows they are a slave. It is another thing to observe service and humility like this from somebody who knows they're a king. And who knows he has the power right now to consume Judas in divine fire and judgment. He knows he has the power to make every man on earth wash his feet. But instead he humbles himself to wash the disciples' feet. And Jesus knew that the entire kingdom, everything, The expanses of the universe had been committed into his hands. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that at the end of time, when death is no more, Jesus will take all that the Father has given to him, having been the perfect executor of all the Father's will and the perfect possessor of all the Father's possessions, and he will turn around and give it as a love gift back to the Father, as an expression of his love, having been the perfect servant and steward over all that the Father has given to him. Jesus knew all of that. He thought of himself and acted as a slave, but he knew, even in washing the disciples' feet, that the highest place in all of the universe was his by divine right. And he could claim it at any moment. And he had every right to do so. That's majesty, is it not? That's humility? That knowing all of that, and knowing that he was on the cusp of glory, knowing that within 24 hours he would again be with the Father, knowing he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father, And that not long after this, he would be with the Father, he would be in glory, and then he would rise in glory, and then he would ascend in glory, and then he would be exalted in glory with all of that before him, and all of that glory at his, at his bequest, at his hands. He did what he did. And that's the third thing I want you to notice. Not only what Jesus faced, the betrayal, what he knew, that the Father had given all things into his hands, but then notice what Jesus did. What Jesus did in verse four. He got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now there is actually in verses 4 and 5, there are seven verbs there where John communicates to us the striking detail of this scene. Uh, this is this is kind of a unique way that John does this. It's just one verb after another giving the minutest of detail of what he saw unfold. Why does John give us the minutest of detail? I think it is for this reason. As John watched this scene unfold, it was indelibly etched into his memory. Have you ever seen something or witnessed something that was so striking, so amazing, that the details of it, the finest details, the the smells, the sights, and the sounds have been indelibly scarred on your memory so that you cannot forget it, even the smallest of details? That's almost what John recounts here. There are seven verbs. Look at them. Verse 4. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel. He girded himself, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. There are seven action verbs there, and John is recounting this scene by scene, step by step, as it unfolded before him. John could have just said, he got up and washed the disciples' feet. And everybody reading this would have known that. Would have known exactly what that involved, and exactly what that looked like. But it is almost as if in John's mind, this whole thing is unfolding in real time, and he sees it step by step. It is etched on his mind, and you know why it's etched on his mind? Because less than 24 hours, he would see Jesus die on a cross, which would illustrate the whole purpose and point of the foot washing. And that would just scar it on John. He saw this, and it had it had an effect on uh, on the disciples and upon John like nothing else that Jesus could have said or did would have that evening. And Jesus, it says in verse 4, he got up from supper. Now there was some pause there at some point, maybe while they were having conversation 
Between courses in the meal, Jesus got up from his reclining and relaxing position. And it says that he laid aside his garments. That means he took off the outer robe, which was the heavy, bulky, loose robe that most men and women wore in those in those times. It doesn't mean that he stripped himself bare naked, but that he took off the, the outer garments that would have encumbered any kind of exertion or physical effort or work. And then he girded, he took a towel, having girded him, having taken a towel, he girded himself. And girded himself means that with whatever, whatever undergarments were left, he would tie them up tight so that they would not encumber uh, or, or uh, halt him from doing any kind of work or manual labor. Have you ever tried to work in really loose clothing and do something that was precise and you're constantly moving the cloak around? Well, that's not what Jesus would do. He, he laid aside the outer garments and then he girded himself, tied everything up tight, and then he went to work. Now, at some point in this whole progression of things, the disciples would have realized what was unfolding. They're all sitting there with dirty feet. Nobody has washed their feet that day. And Jesus would get up from the table. Probably nothing abnormal with that. Necessarily striking. He would take off his outer garments. That would probably catch their attention. But when he girded himself and picked up a towel, do you think there's any disciple in that room did not know exactly what he was about to do? They all would have realized it. That's why, that's why this whole thing was so shocking to them. This was... Even though Jesus had served them for three years, this was the last thing that they would expect from their master, for, for him to wash their feet. They might have expected him, and he had every right to, command them to wash his feet. But he girded himself to wash their feet. Now what is it about that, what Jesus did, that was so glorious? Let me put it this way. This was at a meal, the Passover meal, that was a meal that should have been in his honor. Because everything about Passover pointed toward him. Everything about Passover symbolized him and what he was going to do. He's the head of the table. He is the master of these disciples. This meal, as it is unfolding, this meal was all about him. And they should have recognized that. They should have seen that coming. He was the guest of honor and should have been. And here is the most honorable man at the table stooping to wash his disciples' feet. It is not only what Jesus faced and what Jesus knew, but what Jesus did that night which etched in their mind the lesson of humble service to them. It is possible to serve somebody without loving them. Do you recognize that is true? It's possible to serve somebody without loving them. Maybe every Monday through Friday from 9 to 5 you realize that. Every hour that ticks by you realize that it is possible to serve somebody without loving them. Because you can serve somebody while hating them, actually. You can serve somebody because you need a paycheck. You can serve somebody because, because you hate them. You can serve somebody because it is your duty. You can serve somebody because because you have to. You can serve somebody to impress people. You can serve somebody without having any affection whatsoever in your heart for them. But it is impossible to love somebody without serving them. That is impossible. It is impossible for you to have love and affection in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ and not sacrificially give yourself to Him and for Him in some way. That is impossible. Agape love must sacrifice. Agape love must serve. Agape love will always consider the interests of others ahead of its own. No man can say that he loves his wife if he does not serve her. And no woman can say she loves her husband if she does not serve him. And no man and no woman can say that they love the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not serve him. It is possible to serve somebody without loving them, but it is impossible to love somebody without serving them. And here in the last night of our Lord Jesus, with his disciples, he demonstrates not only his love for the disciples, but he demonstrates that love by doing what? By serving them and washing their feet. And I'm going to close with something that I think is striking and marvelous, and I can't wait to see how this unfolds, because it is going to, it is going to strike awe and fear and reverence into our hearts for all of eternity. The language here in John 13 is very similar to the language in Luke chapter 12. 
In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples about being ready for him when he returns. And here's what he says. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Let me pause there for just a second. In this little analogy that Jesus is giving, who is the master? He's the master. Who are those who are supposed to be waiting for him? His servants, the slaves. Be ready like servants waiting for their master to return. That's the, that's the lesson. Now listen. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. The service of the Lord Jesus is not just something that he did for his people then, and it's not just something that he does for his people now by interceding for us, but what does he teach in this parable? There's going to come a time when that master returns that he will gird himself and they will recline at the table and he will serve his servants. Does that not blow your mind? The humility and grace of that God? That is why Jesus said after that, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And blessed are those slaves indeed to have such a kind, humble-hearted, gracious, and serving master. That's our gracious God. That's our King. He served us then. He serves us now. And he will serve us in eternity. It's our joy to serve him now, isn't it? Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are so grateful to you and for Christ and for what he has taught us regarding service. We pray that the the picture that we have seen here of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed may be like John, forever indelibly marked on our hearts and our minds. Teach us what it means to love one another, to serve one another, and to serve our glorious and gracious King. We thank you that he stooped to serve us, not only becoming flesh and living and dying in our place to give us his righteousness, but that he serves even now, offering intercession for all those for whom he has made a sacrifice. Thank you for that perfect high priest who serves us today. Thank you for that glorious and gracious master and king who will return and set up his kingdom, and we will get to serve him, and he will serve his people. We look forward to that exchange, that expression of love, and that expression of humble gratitude, which will be ours for all of eternity. We ask that you would do these things in our hearts and in our minds, and keep us humble like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.